All right. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone. Thank you. So this is um, welcome to another episode of the full set. Um, I am here with my esteemed colleague, my favorite part of the show, um, when I can say my esteemed <laughs> colleague, Ijioma Oluo. Ijioma, welcome to the full set. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? Oh, we're going to talk about your answer. Just I now. mean, that's relative, right? <laughs> so I just want to explain that if y'all don't know who Ijioma is, I just want to read off the bio, but we're going to get into um, what I think y'all should know about Ijioma. So Ijioma is a Seattle-based writer, speaker, and internet yeller. Her work on social issues such as race and gender has been published in The Guardian, The Stranger, Washington Post, Elle Magazine, NBC News, and more. Her New York Times best-selling book, So You Want to Talk About Race, was released January 2018 with Seal Press. Ijioma was named one of the most influential people in Seattle by Seattle Magazine, one of the 50 most influential women in Seattle by the Seattle Met, one of the Roots 100 most influential <laughs> Americans in 2017 and 2018, and is the recipient of the Feminist Humanist Award in 2018 by the American Humanist Association, the Media Justice Award by the Gender Justice League, and the 2018 Aubrey Davis Visionary Leadership Award by the Equal Opportunity Institute. Ma'am, you've been busy. Welcome to the <laughs> How are you today, Boo-Boo? You know, last night was tough. Um, it's been stressful, but I, I just from my book and last, I'm feeling good as like that general relief of like, oh, two years, it's, it's done. So um, I keep saying good and then re remembering that we're in a pandemic and the world is still and this is book number two case, for you. But, you know, Are you dropping the title? Yes. Um, yeah, it's called uh, Mediocre uh, Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh because I feel like someone, like everyone's been talking about how mediocre white men are. And then like, here you go, just blasting and putting it on a book. So thank you for doing that so much. Um, there's a chapter in, um, in one of the classes I teach called, because mostly white women come to anti-racism classes, right? And so there's a chapter that's like, and what about y'all's men? <laughs> like, you know, so thank you for saying all the things. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so I want to get right into it. Um, I had asked you how you were feeling and you were like, it's relative. So I want to talk about the word fine in the midst of the pandemic. Like, you know, you didn't really say fine, but I feel like this is what we're doing. We're like, everything's fine. It's the puppy with the cup of coffee and everything is on fire, right? Like, how do we hold space for one another um, in the midst of so much uh, loss and grief and un not understanding and then too much understanding and too much inundation with news like how do we hold space during this time for one another or for ourselves even yeah um you know i would say it's really important to recognize that everything we're feeling is valid right because i think sometimes we're like okay no just be positive maybe you know you're healthy or you're not in the midst of this so don't feel bad or don't feel good because everything's falling apart, you know? And I think the truth is, is that part of the human condition means that we're going to face a lot of chaos and a lot of loss in our life, but also a lot of joy. And I think right now, just honoring um, this extraordinary situation that we're in, honoring our responses to it by letting them all come, right? So there have definitely been, you know, yesterday was the tough day, right? And then all of a sudden I'm laughing hysterically at something my partner is doing, right? And it's okay, you know, and it all exists. And I think I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people online apologizing for having reactions to what's going on, apologizing for taking up space with grief and fear and worry and, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so negative. Oh, I'm sorry, I sound so down. Um, we all are, <laughs> and we're in a really scary time. And I think that we shouldn't apologize for that. And we shouldn't apologize for addressing the joy. I think we need to be open to whatever is happening and let our bodies and our brains kind of tell us what we need from one moment to the next and know that that's gonna change. What brings you joy during this time? Like if you could focus in like, you know, we talk about pleasure activism quite often. Like if you could focus on your pleasure, what things are bringing you joy in the midst of so much like 
I, I don't know, I feel isolated right now. And even though I'm talking with y'all each and every day, I feel like the circle and circle around me gets smaller and smaller. So mm-hmm. I, we can talk about that too, but I, I really just want to focus on like, how do I get to happy during this time? Like, you know what I'm saying? Because right now I'm very sad. <laughs> so yeah. I can't believe I just laughed when I said I was sad. You know, I think there's a couple of things. One obviously is my kids. Um, Kids, I think, add stress and joy during times like this, right? But I'm recognizing when I think of this, I'm also thinking in the grand scheme of my life, this is going to be a very short period of time, no matter how long this lasts, really. Um, And it will be a much more formative period of time for my children. Um, But what their world is much smaller than ours, right? Their world is often contained to this home and especially now. And so looking at their world, looking at where they're finding curiosity, encouraging that, spending time with them, you know, still recognizing that they're growing during this time, they're experiencing things during this time. I think you can find a lot of joy if you have children um, in just experiencing things with them. Um, And of course, there's times where they're scared and you're scared. But also, I think for me, in recognizing that this is a period of time that we are moving through, if I take time to notice what's different about it, right? Take time to notice what I'm learning from it. And, and I'm, I'm not one of those people who thinks we have to be hyperproductive. There's a lot okay. of pressure right now to be like, now yeah. write that opus, now make that thing. No, Now you I have think, no excuse to be your right? best self. I'm like, bitch, there's all like, the look, excuses still. <laughs> exactly, no, even more, even more. How about like the crushing fear of death 24 mm-hmm. seven? That's a great excuse mm-hmm. for not getting things done. Right. Um, but I think noticing this is an extraordinary situation that's probably not happening to us again. And so I find myself um, living in unique moments that I know won't happen again. Finding out things about myself and how I deal with stress that I won't ever, I may not get to see again, finding out little moments, finding what brings you joy in this, you know, finding out what you can let go. I think this is a good time to take, to take stock, to simplify, because you do have limited bandwidth emotionally, right? So um, I found out, you know, I mean, I've always known I love like makeup, right? And that's definitely become even more of a ritual for me now that I'm at home, because it's time to just sit there and think about nothing else but I don't like shaving my legs so I've stopped shaving my legs right and I'm like no I can let that go um and see what's that like how do I feel about that how do I feel you know about cleaning the house that now that I know no one's coming over what parts of the house matter to me right and how I feel sitting in it and what things do I not care about at all um Mm. and that's been you know for me like that's been giving me at least some peace um and then just sometimes you have to force these little situations, especially I would say, if you, you know, if you're not feeling like it, sometimes if you, if you feel like you need to cry and you need to sleep, cry and sleep, but also know what it looks like when you're in bed too much, because maybe you're getting depressed because maybe your anxiety is taking over and kind of push yourself out a little bit. Right. So sometimes where I'm like, Oh, I'm tired. I could just sit here for another day and just stare at the internet all day. I think, okay, no, you know what? Maybe I'll push myself for a quick game with my kids. Maybe I'll push myself for this thing and see how I react. Maybe I'll push myself out for a walk um, and see, you know, and treat it kind of like an experiment. Know that it's new and know that maybe the thing- That's what I was going to ask you. Do you feel like you're experimenting more? And it sounds like you're just like, I'm in the stasis right now. (laughs) Like, you know? Yeah. I mean, I was so busy before I was traveling all the time and now I'm busy with different things, right? Um, and I don't know what relieves my stress when I can't go out to a store or I can't go hang out with friends or go out to dinner, right? So is there another thing? Is it right. walking around in nature? Is it, you know, drawing? Is it listening to music? Um, you know, listening to a different audiobook? Experiment with it. And if it, right. you know, I think a lot of times we expect, and this is something I had learned in the past, just from various different traumas. I remember going to a therapist because the things that I used to do to stay calm stopped working and I I remember I took that as a sign that maybe I was backtracking maybe I wasn't doing well and I remember my therapist was saying well this is a different time why would you expect that you would need the same thing Mm. why would you expect to always always need the same things the same comforts why would you expect to need what someone else did maybe you just don't like that thing anymore Maybe that's just not comforting for you anymore. It, maybe you need to try a new thing and, and that can be exciting. And, you know, just 
experiment, you know, and, and don't let, this is an extraordinary situation. So don't let notions of how you used to deal with stress guide the way that, you know, stress looks now. Um, you know, don't let other people's goals become your goals, you know, listen to your body, know it's going to change and, and know that we have very little reference, you know, like mm. we have very little reference to a situation like this, that's going to indicate what we need to do in the future. And it can change rapidly. Right. So I wanted to ask you two questions. One, you mentioned makeup. So we'll get into that in a second. And two, like you were talking about um, work, right? And so like, for those of us who are essential, and I know that your work is also very important, what does it look like for you working now? Like we've had to do a pivot, right? Like we've had to shift in this way. Mm -hmm. And I know when you say that I was booked and busy, you were out here like trap, I mean, big traveling, like, you know, I remember, um, well, we'll go into that in a second, but we were, you're big traveling. And so I think I just saw maybe like last week you had your first keynote or something like that, like mm -hmm. since this pandemic happened. and. Um, I feel like you're a great orator and you're a great storyteller and you weave together stories um, with great skill and precision. And so what does that look like now, digitally, not being able to read the audience? Like, what does that, you know? Yeah, that was hard. I mean, I would say in a couple of things, on the writing tip, it was very difficult, right? Because I think writing, it's an artistic field and it's an emotional field. And when your brain is taken up with all these other highly emotional issues, it can be really tough to set time aside for that. Like I have some friends who are like, writing is my therapy, but I think when writing's your job, you have a different relationship to it. Like writing is no longer my therapy. It stopped being my therapy a very long time ago. It became my job years ago. Um, and sometimes it can be therapeutic at the end when it's done, but for the most part, it's a thing that can be very painful, drudging. It takes a lot of mental energy. And so to find yourself in the middle of a pandemic, and especially if you write about things like I write about, if you write about white supremacy in America, um, it's hard to remember that perspective too. You know it's vital, you know it's important, but pausing your thoughts, getting your brain to shift focus from, am I going to die from coronavirus to how right. can I not die from white supremacy, right? Um, it's same. It's tough. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's tough. tough. It's same. It's, it's tough, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's tough to split your brain like that. It's tough to move from a slow burning crisis, from the immediate crisis to the slow burning crisis that kind of takes over everything. Um, and, and it doesn't feel healthy, right? right? It doesn't feel healthy to be like, let me set aside my fears of coronavirus so I can focus mm. on white supremacy for a while, right? right. Um, so that, that's been difficult. And I think creatively, a lot of people are struggling and don't know why. And I, and I would say that, you know, it makes sense. Um, our brain is, is a muscle like anything else and, and it's working over time. With, with the coronavirus itself. Um, and then from like speeches, that was weird because yeah, I definitely- like, Were you able to see the individuals you were speaking to? No, right? When you do a webinar like this, we can't see nobody. Like, you know, exactly. um, it's only because I'm multitasking on my phone that I'm responding to people's comments and seeking out questions, so. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I couldn't see anything. And I heavily rely, especially because you know, race is so complex. Right. I think it's very important when you're giving a talk to be able to see how white people are responding versus how people of color are responding. And no, am I hitting, you know, am I doing something that's safe for people of color, that's uplifting people of color, or am I saying something that's maybe harmful? Am I saying something that's not registering, right? Like you're right. constantly adjusting based on how people are interacting. And that was completely gone. And what so are I the cues that they're giving you? You're like, mm, hope it works. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? Um, the one thing I noticed is a, I am better at this than I thought. Like, you know what I mean? Like I've done this long enough that I do kind of know what the cues are. I, I remember, you know, I've learned enough and I have to trust in the work I've done over the years, the mm. hundreds of speeches I've given, I have to trust that I still know what I'm doing. Um, I'm, and also I would say if you're working in this and you're giving like online speeches or talks, the space we used to give to register with the audience so they could hear what we're saying, we still have to give online. Right. Okay. People still, we still have to pause. You still need those pauses. <laughs> I was just about to say. Yeah. You still need the tone yeah. and inflection in your voice when you're making that mm -hmm. joke to ease, land, land the pain easier. Like, you know. Exactly. Yeah. But it's weird and awkward, um, but it's better <laughs> than nothing. And um, 
Yeah, and I don't know. We're all trying online. I mean, you know, it's as a speaker, of course, all my talks for most of the year were canceled. And now people are coming back and realizing, okay, this is long term. We still have to have talks. We still have to have these meetings. We're yeah. trying to figure out what this looks like in an online space. Um, it how to keep so engaged. I know it does. I, I just, yeah. I didn't realize because I, I hate traveling, right? I'm afraid of flying still, even though I, I have flown <laughs> hundreds of flights over the last year. Um, and I take anxiety meds to get on a plane every time, but I didn't realize how much I miss having these meaningful conversations and seeing other people and just having these conversations, right? And so we have to find a new way for now. We'll, it, it's temporary, um, but we have to because these issues still exist, right? We still have to keep doing the work. So we have to find a way, but it's tough. And then as far as like essential workers, you know, my partner is an essential worker who has to leave to go to work um right. so that at the beginning was really terrifying right at the beginning i was very You're much like, like no you absolutely can't can be I doing just, your job yeah, that you've been exactly. doing <laughs> can i just in case you want a bubble and right. and leave so that you can never leave the house you know right. and and realizing a couple of things one that you know his work of course is very important to him and you know he works in radio and it's an essential okay. service and, and that matters, right? right, you know, and, and that, you know, also he's a grown ass man, which I have to keep reminding myself, like, I can't just, you know, keep him in a bubble. Um, but, you know, working and realizing, you know, that they're putting a lot of thought into that. But of course, it's a variable when you realize that every, a lot of people are in these situations and in a lot more dangerous situations as essential workers, but, right. but the people who are most likely to have to leave for work are going to be people of color. And that's, that's the reality of it but you know and, and, and it's weird for him too to go into a workspace that now has almost no people and where he has to spend you know all this time sanitizing everything before he can sit down and, and right. work and you know it's that's interesting and we're all kind of trying to do this work without any interaction with other humans but I just keep reminding myself you know in the grand scheme of my life this will be a short period of time we right. have to get through it. We have to get through it together. So I want to take a question. I have like, like, we don't like just for people to understand what the show is about. We don't plan in advance. Like I just sent me <laughs> with a link. Thank you for having grace <laughs> during this time, because I was like, I've got everything under control. I've got to get my hair done. I've got to order the food for Egypt. I've got to, like, you know, mm -hmm. and then you were like, babe, I don't have the link. <laughs> and I was like, my bad. Um, so no, I, thank you for being understanding. But um, I have already my list of things to talk about. Um, but there, um, someone asked me for my cash app when we're promoting your um, your you have a GoFundMe up, and um, the GoFundMe for Egioma is the is a link for mutual aid artists. Do you want to go and explain that to us, and then I'll ask the question from the audience. Yeah, definitely. So um, we started um, a, a little over a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, uh, a um, basically a, a mutual aid fund for Seattle area artists, performing artists, visual artists, you know, artists of all kind who right. have been impacted by this because they were some of the first people whose gigs were canceled. They have very little backup and they'll also be probably likely the last industry to recover. It'll be a long time before bars are open, a long time before we have concerts, before optional art classes are opened up. Um, and so we have been able to distribute over $500,000 to over 900 sale artists. Every penny goes directly to Seattle area artists. And we're focusing our efforts to make sure that our outreach is primarily focused on Black, Indigenous, POC artists, trans artists, disabled artists, to make sure that they get um, access to this mutual aid. And it's not a ton of money. It's it's really an emergency fund, but it's a low barrier. We're trying. We don't want people having to beg. We don't want people having to turn, you know, into um, grant, you know, like we don't want it to be a job applying for grants and things like that. We want right, to, of course just be able to get their groceries if they need it, get their meds if they need them. So that's our project. And we are partnered with Langston, which is, um, Langston um, is a black theater advocacy group uh, run by Tim Lennon. And their goal is to advance black excellence in the arts. They are our fiscal sponsors sending out checks 
um, and making sure that we can get these payments out smoothly. So every every penny helps an industry, a group of people who've been hit so hard and have been really, really forgotten right. in this crisis. Like everyone's turning to art right now, right? Everyone's right. reading these books, listening to music, can't wait for the online shows and people forget that all these the artists have been devastated by this crisis and that they should be compensated and that if we want the arts to come back if we want these concerts if we want there to be art in the next crisis we have to make sure that the artists can afford to eat you know and stay in the city and seattle has you know one of the highest cost of living cost of living in the country so artists who are often working gig to gig who lost tens of thousands of dollars already um, are in desperate need of help so um, um, can you do me a favor? That's why I like mm -hmm. reading the comments. <clears throat> um, no, 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 like you said, we're all just managing in the midst of this pandemic. So I copied your bio and the GoFundMe link directly from the email that I was sent. Mm -hmm. And this GoFundMe is actually not the Seattle initiative. So can you do me a favor? <laughs> Well, mm -hmm. you don't have to do me the favor. We'll make a white person do it. Um, white people, do me a favor. Go to EGOMA's page and look for the Seattle Artist um, Mutual Aid Fund yeah. link. And you actually, if you just go to Langston, go to langston.org backslash S-A-R-F, and that will okay. have everything in it. So thank you for saying that. And then once mm -hmm. someone posts that, I will make that the pinned comment. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> but also support that baby. Oh, my God. Um, so there is that. Um, so something I wanted to talk to you about is I think what y'all are doing is great. Um, there has been a conversation, you know, amongst artists, like on the East coast, where it's like, um, if you, you know, most artists, like you said, are actually not able to work as artists full time or whatever. Right. And mm -hmm. so like most people that I know have jobs, like I have, I'm a full-time executive assistant, you know, white people are consistently telling me to go to work. And I'm like, do I have to go to work right now? Like, you know, mm -hmm. I don't want to. Right. And, um, I think about, you know, a friend of mine, she's completely out of work and be, I was like, apply for an artist grant. And she said something to me that I really had to consider. She was like, artist grants aren't for me, even though she's been a performance poet for over 20 mm -hmm. years, she was like, because they, I can't show like, a continued like you know and so I like I don't know do you have any thoughts about like the nonprofit industrialization complex oh yeah oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> absolutely no I mean that's yeah that's I mean and that's been what's so frustrating about this like when we set it up you know I grew up in the in that system right I grew up on grants government assistance everything right my mom as a single parent three kids we, we tried to do everything get by. And I remember how dehumanizing, how many hoops you had to go through, how, how really gross it is, how little we trust poor people, especially people of color. Um, right. And so I didn't want that. And you know, it was interesting. So for our application, right, it's literally um, a questionnaire. You just say what, what gigs you had that were canceled and then how much you need to get by. That's it. Like we Boston don't, Foundation, you don't need to be paying attention. <laughs> My NAACP's you know keynote got moved till fucking October. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. And you know what was interesting about that, right? Is we did that on purpose. That was really conscious. I did not want anything that would make, I would rather bet on people and have a couple people make stuff up. I said, up, I right? know if you was involved, it was a different thing. It's a different thing. I'm not talking about right. your, yeah. um, I'm just talking about yeah, in no, no, general. No. But what, what we just, yeah, what we discovered right away that was funny though was, A, first of all, the only people who were aghast at how easy it was to apply and get money were white people. And they were like, even like white artists were like, what do you mean? You can just say you need money and you'll get money. And I'm like, yeah. Right. They're like, oh, well, you're asking, you're asking for a scam. And like, I can see who's applying. I know these people, this is my community, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's very legit. People are being so kind. People are asking for the smallest amount possible. You know, they're like, oh, I lost $10,000, but what I really need is 200 to get groceries for the month. Right, right. Right. You know, people are trying, they know they're trying to spread this out, but it was hilarious to see this notion of like, what do you mean? You would just give it to people. Right. Um, but also what I saw is a lot of people who work in larger foundations were like, I was hearing from some of the people who were in it really for the love of helping people who were like, jealous they're like oh my god i'm so jealous that you just get to give money to people we can't do that we have all these rules all these things we can't do right and it's really sad because the truth is is that we have gotten money to people before anyone else did 
and we have been keeping people af afloat where no one else has. And I'm hearing from artists left and right who are like, I applied for 12, 15 different types of assistance. You are the only person who gave it to us. It's really disgusting. And it's also really disgusting to see how many of these trusts and funds are able to sit on their money right now. They're acting like they're the ones at risk and they're not giving money out. We have billions of dollars sitting there that's supposed to be earmarked for charitable causes right. that aren't being released because they're like, oh, well, we don't know what the stock market's gonna do. Oh, we don't know. You know what? Yeah, of course we don't know. And now is where you give to keep people afloat. Isn't that why this money set aside? And it's been really disgusting because you would think right now people would be coming out of the world work, bringing all of their money, their millions and billions they have set aside, quote unquote, you know, for charitable causes that they're giving these mm -hmm. tax breaks. From. Or what I like I to call charitable offenses. Right. And you think this is where they would be putting it out. And no, they're sitting on it. They're sitting on right. it now more than ever. And it's really gross. And we need to look at that and look at these groups and say, I hope at the end of this, they will look at who gave the money out, who got out to people, to individuals, not big businesses. Right. Not these programs that just also sat on it and said, oh, we're going to use it for our overhead or we're going to make sure we can survive instead of the people we serve. Look at who got money for the people. And that's where you need to put your money next time. Don't don't put it in right. these spaces aren't getting money to the people. It's really gross to me to see how tight fisted um, our foundations have become right now in this and how how selfish they've become. Because like even the Harvard behind right? this are going to. Yeah, the people behind this are going to be fine. Right. Right. The people behind these foundations will be fine, but they're acting as if these foundations are more important than the people they serve. And it's and I'm also seeing that, too, with arts organizations, um, with, you know, who had promised work to these artists and the work was canceled, the events were canceled. And not only are they not helping out the artists that they, you know, that who invested time and money into upcoming shows and exhibitions and classes. Right. They're also laying off their staff with no medical, you know, no severance because right. they think that that building is more important than the people who keep it running. Ooh. And it's absolutely disgusting to me. And we really need to look at who kept the human beings going, who kept the people who are down and out going. And that's where we need to invest our time and energy when this is up. I really hope we keep strong accounting. You know, we're keeping an accounting of what all these artists are losing because no one else is asking. No one's asking. Right. How many right. of your gigs, how many gigs were canceled? What does that mean? Everyone's like, will this theater still exist? And that matters. Right. But no one's asking, will these artists still exist? Right. You know? And and it's just, I mean, we all knew that the nonprofit industrial complex was problematic in many, many ways. Right. But seeing seeing it become even worse in times of crisis has been really disturbing. I appreciate you saying that. My next article is going to be based largely in part of uh, my 15 plus years of experience working for all nonprofits um, and also largely borrowing and, and obviously crediting a lot of the work that um, the 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 amazing films from Incite the, the Color of Violence have been doing about, you know, the, <laughs> the revolution will not be funded. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just really excited about that. But you had written a tweet on April 16th. Um, you had said, just a reminder that the normal many are so eager to get back to is one in which so much wealth has been hoarded at the top that millions of Americans were left financially devastated by their first missed paycheck. And I personally know someone um, who has helped me out of situations a lot and now she is needing to move and so like it's re really weird for me to reckon with that because you know here I am talking about rent strike and then the person who's kind of been like my financial stability has been like well we've got to move out of our house like you know what I'm saying so I mean The fact that y'all are being data informed and not data driven around like what you're saying is it's not just about how much money we've raised or how much we're giving away. We're also documenting how much money people are losing because of this, you know, and so mm -hmm. I, do you think, you know, everyone's talking about such a pivot, such a pivot. This is the time to change the environment, right? And do you think that things are going to go back to status quo? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, in a way that's actually works for people of color and for poor people in this country. Um, I want to be hopeful. I think we have an opportunity for things not to. I really do. But I think that right now, our media especially is doing a very good job of steering conversation away from that. Um, we're not talking about the reasons behind 
why this has been so financially devastating. We aren't talking about the fundamental steps we need to take to get out of that. Right now we're treating our big businesses like they're heroes because they're donating some mass while they're sitting on billions of dollars of profits that they could be using to help their workers first and foremost, right? right. Um, it's really gross. And, and I don't see, I, and part of it honestly, I think is the fact that we have a pandemic that stops us from coming together and talking about our experiences. So I think the shift that needs to happen, right, is we have to be much more open about our experiences. We have to get better at talking about money, which is something Americans have never been very good at. We have to be honest about what, not only what our financial reality is now, but what our financial reality was before now. Our financial reality. Yeah. What a term. And yeah, we got to start talking about, you know, really like how much debt we were in before. Talk about what our cushion was before and why. Talk about what our wages are. Talk about what our boss's wages are. You need to start talking with your coworkers and find out who's making more and less than you and start figuring out why, right? We need to start talking about what right. percentage of companies' profits are actually getting to people. But the problem is, is of course, the nature of this illness, and I think that's why there's no motivation, is it's keeping us in our homes. We can't get together and have these conversations. And they know we can't get out into the streets right you know because hey we don't have that kind of white audacity right now that conservatives have to try to risk death um to think that oh you <laughs> was gonna talk about it i wasn't sure i wasn't sure i was like i don't know you know um we don't have that right we we do we we believe in science enough to know that we can't risk our lives out there and i think that they know that you know there's not going to be an angry mob right now so they're just ignoring it. But the truth is, is that some people will coast through this just fine. And others, a huge amount of people are gonna be financially devastated. And because there are people who coast through it just fine, they're gonna keep running. The big businesses are gonna keep going. Right. And it's not going to lead to a fundamental shift unless we find a way in this crisis to keep talking about it, to share stories and find the underlying patterns, to recognize our rights, to recognize that it's not the crisis that did this. It's the fact that our system was so broken mm. that we couldn't weather even a month of crisis before things start falling apart. And we have to really talk about that. We have to talk about the fact that the reason, you know, I mean, there's a lot of weird white supremacy and things like that behind these protests to open up states. Right. But we also should talk about how absurd it is that the only options we have in one of the richest countries in the world is to risk financial devastation or risk death. Right. That we are we are we have encouraged so much about profit. We have encouraged so much about getting money out of the hands of the people who are who are creating things as quickly as possible to get that money out into investors as quickly as possible and away from the public as quickly as possible that we that even our businesses don't have enough cushion to keep going for more right. than a month right. in crisis um there's something very very broken about that and we have to look at that and that means we have to be looking at our life before we have to stop romanticizing before we have to really realize the position mm. we were in and look at that and say you know what it wasn't great um it may have felt great because we live in a consumerist society because we've been thrown all these little things to distract us we could go to right. the mall we could buy a new gadget we could do these things the mall nobody goes to the mall but you know what i'm old i'm showing my age there um at least you but, didn't say like the shopping center. I mean, you're right. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like we could do all these things that made it seem like we were better off than we were. We could get that new iPhone. We could do all, you know, and have the mm. hands for it. I feel personally um, and all, all of this made it seem like we were winning this capitalist game. Mm. And there is no winning this capitalist game for, for the everyday person. And I think that we, uh, we need to use this to reappraise um, and, and start demanding more and know that we've always had the right to demand more. But, and, and, and I think now's a good time for that. We are leading up to an election. So if we start having those conversations, we can start pushing our candidates to start having these conversations as well. And I'm not saying it's gonna lead to fundamental change, but you know what? I don't care if you mean it or not, right? I know that politicians will do what they need to do to keep to get elected and keep getting elected. And if they have to pretend to give a damn about poor people to get elected, then you know what? I, I don't care, right? Um, that was a really good time to be forced in these conversations and we should. Mm. 
So I want to force that conversation because it's on my list. My, I had one thing mm-hmm. on my list and now I'm, I'm making like parallels and drawing lines. It's great. <laughs> um, so I promised LaShondia that I would ask you a question because she was mm-hmm. also feeling really sad this week. And I told her, I was like, I will, I will ask whatever question. And so Ms. Griffin's question was, Ijeoma, do you find it more painful to write about white supremacy with the starkness this pandemic has shown, this, has shown that this country has for us? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and especially seeing how it's impacted um, Black and Indigenous communities, especially, has been even more gutting. Like to, and, and to watch too, you know, that, oh, we're still murdering Black people in the street right now. Like that's still a thing that's happening. People are, people are breaking their quarantine to murder Black people in the street, right? fuck, you know, um, devastating. And yeah, and I was finishing up my book as this started, you know, and I was like, oh, okay, I'm, you know, and one of my colleagues um, that I was in this program with at Harvard died, a black man in Detroit, and it was heartbreaking. Mm. And I'm like, oh, okay, now I have to pause and I'm going to go look up this genocide of Native people to write for this chapter of my book. And yeah, yeah, that's, um, it's incredibly devastating. Uh, and the trauma of the work we do any of us who work, I mean, it's the trauma of being, you know, a black person in America is huge. If you work in any kind of racial justice field, the hard part is, is that you do the work and then you expect to be able to set it aside. And, you know, I know people who work as counselors, people who, you know, work in, you know, like um, rape advocacy intake centers, right? Who do work that really guts you. And then they go home and they build a space where they can recover. When you're a black person, you go home and it's not necessarily a space you can recover. And I think right now what we're seeing for people who deal with this sort of trauma day in and day out that this virus is bringing, like knowing that I have a bigger chance of dying just because I'm black, right? Knowing that I'm going to get worse care because I'm black, right? right? Knowing that there will be decisions made about whether or not I'm worth saving and that would be because I'm black. Knowing that my peers, my friends, the people I love have no idea if they have pre-existing conditions because doctors have treated them like shit their whole lives and they haven't gone to a doctor in 20 years for good reason, right? It's all because they're black. And that's what's waiting for me when I set my work down, right? So, you know, writing all day about white supremacy, setting that down and then checking the news, you know, living this life, looking, having this weighing on you, it's, um, yeah, it's harder. It's definitely hard. And it was interesting because I think, you know, everything we went through last year with the swatting and everything like that in our house. Um, Can you explain really what dev- swatting is? Because some people don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's where you um, spoof a phone call to law enforcement with a bomb threat, a murder threat, something like that. With The goal is to get armed police officers to someone's home. So that happened yeah. to us. And my son was targeted last year and it was very traumatic. And it was part of a year long campaign of kind of terrorizing us in our home. Um, when that lessened, you know, partially because we moved, we had to move. Right. Um, I, I think it had just started to hit me and I was just processing, right, all of that trauma. And I had been writing my book the whole time. And I remember my doctor being like, Joma, you can't do this. Like you can't keep writing all day about these horrific things and then coming home and feeling unsafe in your home. This is not, you're, you can't heal. So I was just processing it and like kind of my body was, doing this delayed reaction to the trauma because I think like many of us especially black women we kind of go into survival mode where it's like nope you know what I will feel this later I will deal with this later so I was dealing with that and it was it sucked like it sucked I was completely falling apart (laughs) it really sucked and once I realized what was happening it, it was a little better I was like okay I get it this is part of the process right this is the trauma process and then immediately, probably, you know, right in the middle of trying to get through that, this happens. And I'm definitely back in survival. Right, <laughs> definitely. Right. It short-circuited that entire thing. And it's like, nope, you know what? Maybe six months from now. I can, we'll I can focus on this, right? <laughs> yeah. Because do you and remember so, that there was yeah. um, a time that you and I were actually roped together for whatever reason? Um, you had just went through a really traumatic experience at Cracker Barrel. And first of all, bitch, I really didn't understand why you were at Cracker Barrel. Um, but now <laughs> I understand because I did order from them the other day. I'm sorry, I, ju- I did. It was like, the only place open. Yeah, we were in Montana right. on a road trip. <laughs> there was no other place to eat. Like nothing else existed. Yeah. 
Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Um, but <laughs> I was like, their macaroni is not good. Um, so no, okay. no. Yeah. The grits. Are yeah, no, too. it wasn't good at all. And so you and I had gotten roped in together. And I forget how, I think it was because you defended me. That's what happened. White supremacists it, were writing about me and just, yeah. you know, body shaming me and saying all the things I didn't have a job, mm-hmm. even though I was, you know, getting paid $60,000 a year to work somewhere, I guess. Um, you yeah. know what I'm saying? So, and it's just, it's so pervasive. And I, I'm, you know, I reached out to you when the swatting happened and I was just, cause I know, I know, and I understand, you know, and so it's very scary. So with that said, I want to talk about something I saw on Beyonce's bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you remember January of this year very well since, you know, it's been 20,000 <laughs> years since then. Um, but there was a quote by mm, pretty famous author. I don't know if you know him. He says, as a writer, I'm allowed to nominate in just three categories. He was like, I'd never consider diversity in matters of art, only quality. It seems to me mm-hmm. that no otherwise would be wrong. And he also said that writers are not underscored by acts of violence, right? And I'm talking about Stephen King, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I recall reliving the thread in which so many Black femmes went and read him for filth on Twitter. And what is your thoughts about just the pervasiveness? I guess, can I, I go back to something you said, quote, when we identify where our privilege intersects with someone else's oppression, we will find our opportunities to make real change. Is there a point for any person of Stephen King's caliber to make real change? Yeah. I mean, if, if, I mean, especially like he's literally talking about like a nomination process, right? Like that's a power he has right there. He's right. like, Mm, I'm not going to engage with my, you know, any, any of my privilege in this space. Yeah, no, he has huge power to make change, right? He has huge, huge platform, millions of people listening to what he says, right? And in fact, you know, because he can say the same ignorant shit that a lot of weird misguided white dudes say, and we're all talking about it, right? Huge platform, huge opportunity for change. He has a huge audience of young white men who need to hear more enlightened, empathetic, aware views on race and gender and he's choosing not to he's choosing to validate um he's like nothing to see here yeah nothing to see here no you're right you know if you make it you made it only because of your skills and you know um what you've gone through is only you know has nothing to do with race has nothing to do with gender and you know you're of you know your voice even though it's the same voice that's been heard from the since the beginning of time is just as you know important as the people who are never heard and you know and it's just ridiculous um yeah he has huge power to make change and i think that part of you know what's interesting is he knows that and i think that's part of why he does this and people like him do this because he wants to let himself off the hook for not doing something there's no reason for him to comment otherwise it's threatening him and the level of action that he's taking or not taking right it's threatening his position he's saying this because he's seeing other people in similar positions having different conversations and making different choices and he doesn't want to look at what that means about him as a person especially Mm. because he wears his liberal cred so hard what does that say about you as a person that you're saying like um the fact i feel like the fact that he said so broadly from his cis head white male like throne Mm -hmm. nothing bad happens to writers while so much has happened to you, to Roxanne, mm-hmm. the comments that they make about Roxanne are really just deplorable. And so, and I know that there's so many of us. I know that um, even for someone like with my size of a platform, just like, I don't even know where these fucking people come from. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, like who signaled them? You know, like who, <laughs> yeah. who blew the smoke up their ass? Like, you know, and so that's why I mean is to me, I feel like whiteness is so pervasive and it's it's dangerous and like I don't understand why white people don't understand that um how inherently violent that they are you know um you know I think there's so much about whiteness that I can understand right like my mom is white and I grew up in Seattle so I I grew up inundated with whiteness but what I don't know is what it feels like to get all the way through to adulthood without realizing what whiteness means. Like, I don't know that feeling. I don't know what that ignorance, how that has to shape your world because white people are allowed to go through their entire lives without knowing what whiteness means, without knowing what they're a part of. We don't get to get to preschool without knowing what blackness means, Mm. right? Because it 
it, it's, it dictates how we're treated, how we're seen. We know we have to moderate our speech, our actions. We know we have to be hyper aware of how people who aren't black are looking at us and how they're you know, perceiving us. We have to be aware of how we're writing and the language we're using, right? We can't speak the way we speak to our friends when we're writing our papers or trying to get published. We are hyper aware of our blackness at all times. Whiteness never has to be aware. And you can be called a genius and never know the most important factor of how you navigate the world, to have no idea about it, to never have to think, how does my whiteness look to other people? How, what is the power of my whiteness? How am I you know, playing into any sort of collective action or collective viewpoint? You never have to look at it. Right. And I don't know what that's got to be like, especially when you have so much smoke blowing up your ass, when you can be called a genius, when you can be called the storyteller of our time and still not know what whiteness is and still right. not know how you're portraying whiteness to other people. Um, I don't know what that has to feel like. I don't know what that dissonance mm. has to feel like to be told, oh, no, 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 no. You know nothing about yourself. Right. You know, like what is that? Especially right. if you're like Stephen King, right? And you're a writer right. and your job yeah. is to translate human experience. And the biggest and I was part about of to say, and especially fear, about, right? But right? that's his, yeah. that's his niche, like, you know? And yeah. so how can he, I mean, you could never write about black fear, but to yeah. act as if it doesn't exist or it's some anomaly, yeah. like, right? Well, and, and he doesn't even know how to write about white fear, right? Because oh, the fear that he writes about is the fear that doesn't happen, right? The fear are the things living under your streets, yeah. right? And right. not- the fear Cujo. of the black man walking towards you when you're at night, right? Because that's the fear that he can have and never have to investigate. And that's the thing that, you know, I would love white, you know, that's the thing as a writer too that's frustrating for me. Um, so much writing about whiteness is so boring and doesn't actually write about it's whiteness. It's super fucking boring. I would love to read a book written about whiteness that actually talks about whiteness and how whiteness functions. And it doesn't have to be a I'm tearing down racism. I have a friend um, who, Jen, Jenny Forrester, who wrote a memoir of her mother and a memoir of growing up like in the West. Like when we think of the West, like the old West, right? She grew up like right. in Montana and Wyoming. Like tumbleweeds? Right? Yeah, exactly. You know, trailer in the middle of nowhere, you know, hunting for food. This sounds like life. a bad movie set. Go ahead. Right? But she wrote about it in such, a, not a moralizing way, in a real stark aware way right. not trying to preach something but you know walking by and the casual racism that happens is written in there and it's not saying i was disgusted and i would have fixed it and i would have no you wouldn't have right. and it's acknowledging that i walked by i saw this happen i did nothing move on next scene this happened right and it's such a picture of whiteness that's so recognizable to me and yet something i have never read in a book written by another white person where they could recognize like, oh, this is part of white culture, right? This casual fear, this casual bigotry is actually a part of white culture. Right. It's what I participate in even as a good person. Um, and I'm not going to moralize it. I'm not going to say that it kept me up at night because it didn't, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's so much interesting oh, writing sh about- I know, I'm gonna tag a writer about. right now. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much interesting writing that can be done about whiteness that's not being done and instead we're getting all this weird bullshit you know i would love to see something that i can recognize because i think people of color know whiteness way better than white people because we have to like I spot, is that you playing in the himalayas like you right. know no like we have to know right like i have to know what a, an angry white person looks like i have to know when a white person's scared even though they're telling me they love me right, right. like i have to know all Ooh. these things because i can't get by otherwise and a white person can feel all these things, do all these things, and never have to investigate it. So I don't um, know, someone, maybe we need to start writing about it. Oh, I would love to. This is my, so I once told someone in 2015, we're no longer friends because they're white. And sometimes white <laughs> people, and I know you're laughing, but sometimes white people who are your friends, they think that, um, I think that there's a care and concern that they give that's actually mirrored in their own care and concern. Um, mm -hmm. So they, I, I guess this person never understood that me fighting for Black liberation was actually me fighting for myself and for my child and for my children's children. And I remember one time he was like, you know, I just feel like you're doing too much. You're like seven months pregnant. You've been on four flights in the past six months. And I was like, would you say it to a white woman? I don't know. You know, and, and I think about how much my hard work like has landed me. I want to say thank you. Um, 
before after I say thank you, we talk about respectability politics. So I want to say thank you because at a, and I'm talking about respectability politics because um, at a time when I was just a baby organizer, I mean, and I feel like sometimes I still am because I run into people that I'd be like, well, I've been doing this shit and working on the same campaign for 20 years, and I'm like, oh, how's, how's that going? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, so when I think about like when I first came in and like you know I started writing for the Huffington Post, I was like having poets edit my shit. And, you know, um, when I started writing for BLM, BLM didn't want to publish my stuff because they were like, you're not writing for our audience. And I was like, because your audience isn't black people. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. So I was like, I'm going to write about the stuff that I want to write about. Um, and that, you know, I started publishing on Medium and I don't know where you came from. I really don't. And I'm just so grateful that your team or you stumbled across mm -hmm. some of my articles and was like, you know, you reached out to me and was like, we'd like to publish this. This was at a time that I won't say the name of the magazine, but I was offered a monthly column and, um, and was asked, we'll pay you $850 for your very first article. And I never heard of anything like that. Mm -hmm. And I wrote Mark Zuckerberg hates black people. And they were like, we cannot publish this. And I was like, what? And I was like, let me call you Gia Will. Like, like, you know, same way. <laughs> and so I just want to say thank you because you really gave me an opportunity to showcase what knowledge that I have and what I really want to like craft and tell people about because a lot of people weren't trying to publish me. And it's so funny because a lot of the pieces that were published actually made not just a lot of money, but it made a lot of sense. Like, you know what I'm saying? And I just want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity because if if you all wouldn't have, I'm not sure what this platform would be right now. So I just want to say, you know, sometimes I get really aggy, you know, but um, mm -hmm. I just want to say thank you because um, it, it does oh. mean a lot to me. So, well, I'm glad um, that you trusted your voice, you know, um, it's an industry that tries to get black women not to, but it's that's there's no sure way to failure than letting your voice mm -hmm. go and, and not recognizing it as the skill and the talent um and not recognizing its value and you kept with that and that's really important so I'm, I'm just proud to be any sort of part of it absolutely thank you and it's also like I stopped fucking around with white editors because they were crafting my oh you're like mm -hmm. they were crafting my message to their white audience and I was like yes I talk about whiteness and yeah I talk about the pervasiveness of Becky's and the Caucasian invasion when I talked about the surge article nobody wanted to help me write that shit not even my mm -hmm. editor that I have now wanted to help me it's not going to make mm -hmm. sense People don't even know who Surge is, which is true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, and I was just like, you know, so I just want to say thank you because I feel like I've taken a huge pause on writing the article I'm working on now. Like I said, is about the nonprofit and my 15 plus years of experience and like asking other Black women to share in and chime in with their stories because I think that it's important to uplift the voices of the people it actually affects. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about respectability of politics. You had mm -hmm. shared. You went to, I feel like I keep running into y'all niggas at the New York Writers Institute. <laughs> I just ran into Damon Young too. So mm -hmm. um, you had shared a story and I think that you've shared this actually a couple of times, but I'd like for you to share it with my audience. Um, you know, we were talking about the distancing, you know, a lot of times people act as if classism um, or, or I won't say casual racism, but like this whole, you know, this is us versus them type of blacks. Mm -hmm. um, and you'd shared a story about a picnic and I was hoping that you could share that story. <laughs> You're like, do I have to? But I was hoping that you could share that story because I feel like, I hate to say it, but coming from you, I feel like people would respect it and understand it more. It doesn't matter how much I talk about respectability politics. Literally people are like, oh, you're just angry and bitter. Like, you know, so if you could share mm -hmm. that story, I'd be really grateful for that. Yeah, um, it, yeah. so it's, it's actually, it's a chapter in the book um, as well. Um, and it was really just kind of where I had realized my own some of, some of, because I'm sure I have, I have a lot more, of failings in recognizing my power and privilege as a Black person. Um, and, you know, I was part of this social group in Seattle, and Seattle is a hard place to be Black, right? We're, we're about five, six percent Black in the city. I know I came and, to visit you and I wanted to leave immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a really tough place to be Black. And so we had this social group and we would have these great dinners. We would have, you know, like we would have these art things and it was very, like it felt very fancy. We felt very cool. Um, and I suddenly, even though I had a lifelong satellite, felt like I had more Black friends than I ever had in my life. Mm -hmm. And we were hanging out having a picnic in this incredibly white area where like in, in Capitol Hill, um, where I had never felt comfortable right 
and we're having a picnic and there's like hummus and bottles of wine and there's like I already know how white it is when you say hummus baby but but it's but it's all black people right right we're all lounging around but and then all of a sudden there was another group of black people who were not in our group who had been playing basketball and you could tell they were very curious as to what this giant flock of black people were doing lounging in the middle of this park in one of the more hostile neighborhoods right. in, in the city and so they came wandering over and aesthetically there were huge differences right like we we're at our artsy clothing right and these these guys had literally just come off the basketball court and they're like what are y'all doing <laughs> like what's happening and they're like but the whole crowd stopped everyone felt uncomfortable and there was this sense of like, they came from outside, they don't belong, right? Mm. This group that had built itself up, talked about how great it was it existed, had done all these great things. There were black people that didn't belong in it. And, and it was the economic and social indicators they gave off just in their walk and their clothing that indicated they did not belong. And everyone was uncomfortable for quite a long pause. It was really noticeable. And I was wondering, I was like, God, what is this shift in this air? Right. And then eventually someone was like, oh, you know, you want some, you want some hummus? You know? And they're like, you know, and they, you know, talk for a few minutes and then they left. And I went home and I thought about it and I was like, God, why was that so weird? Why was that right. so uncomfortable? And I realized that like, these weren't the black people that were sought for in this group that they weren't the sign of progress that this group was looking for these weren't the black people to be celebrated right they were to be talked about like in articles right advocated for when they were killed but not to be included not to shape the group in any way right, right. and i was i was dating a woman at the time who wasn't from seattle um she was from um california and I asked her, I said, you know, how come you never go to these events? And she was like, oh, those are some bougie black people. There's no way. <laughs> and I was laughing. I'm glad your sister friend <laughs> homegirl told you what the deal was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was like, nope, absolutely not. Like she was laughing at me, you know, she's like, yeah, of course you went, but no, there's no way. And I realized like, oh yeah, this is what privilege looks like. We've been patting ourselves on the back. But the truth is, is when it comes to Seattle, we all had like our tech jobs, right? To back up our art. We all had, you know, all these things, right? Where we could just dash out, get a bottle of wine and bring it to a picnic in the middle of the day, right? right? We were a certain type of black that we thought was success, you know, successful, that we thought was acceptable. And we were celebrating the relative privilege we had without realizing that it came at the cost, came at the expense of a lot of other black people. And, and I just didn't, I still actually love a lot of what that group does. And there are a lot of people who like come to Seattle with tech jobs and don't have any friends because they came from a tech job like in Atlanta where they're used to seeing black people in tech and they come to Seattle and there's no black people. And they're like, oh my God, this group's perfect for them. Right. But also it could be better. Right? It could do so much more. And there are people who are harmed by that exclusion. And then I realized, you know, it, it felt like so many other things that that don't sit well with me when we, you know, constantly talk about the black people who didn't deserve to be shot, the black people who deserve to be celebrated because they get A's in the white supremacist educational Bob system or because they got it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and and that's when I recognized where how easy it is, even in activism, to fall into respectability politics and how dangerous that is because we're just creating a new stratus, right? We're creating and we're just moving the ladder around. We're not actually dismantling it. I got like 10 minutes, by the way, before I got to sure. jump. No problem. I another, Thank you. I have, I have another Zoom coming up. I love it. Thank you for letting me know. Um, so the last question I want to ask you um, you know, you had written a status about Ahmad Arbery and like, I, I always feel like it's, it's kind of like the same cycle. Yeah. Black man or black woman, black child, black trans woman get shot by police, um, armed vigilante, um, someone or some white person with a gun and, um, very few people rally behind it. And then we, it's like we were waiting for the proof or the evidence. And, and then the video comes out and now everyone's incensed. And I think about all the time that's elapsed since January. And I also yep. think about something you said um, when you were talking about, we need to hold our politicians accountable and how Joe Biden's out here just like, 
you know, trying to call for justice. And I'm like, of course you are. And so like, what, like, when is enough going to be enough for us? Or is it like, we've just been desensitized to it happening so much? Um, You know, and and this question isn't for white people. I actually don't care about their pain and their trauma surrounding this. I care about us. I care about the fact that, do I want to click on this video and see it? Do I, you know, and and I was just hoping that you could share like a comforting, maybe it's not comforting, maybe it's just real as fuck, like word to impart us with, because that's super important to me because I'm just like not able to process. And I was just hoping I could process it with someone I know. Yeah, um, it's hard. You know, I, I have moments, there are things sometimes where I'm like, I just can't look at it right now. I can't do that to myself. And I would say that that's a normal survival instinct for people who are inundated with this sort of terror. And we are inundated with this terror. We can't survive feeling every bit of it. But I will say this. Right. We can honor that loss. People deserve to be grieved. And that impulse to grief that we think might break us apart is actually what's humanizing us. The fact that we do care. The fact that after all all of this, we still care, that it still guts us. That's someone's baby, right? And I was sure when I started doing this work that it was going to break me apart. I was sure that if I opened myself up to it, and I wrote about this, that I would just scream and scream and scream and never stop. And I can definitely say, I cry more than I ever thought I would in my life. I spend a lot more time grieving and crying. Um, I can't discuss it without tearing up, like even right now. Um, But opening that up and realizing, realizing it's not a weakness, realizing that it is normal to grieve our people, realizing that it is a beautiful thing to honor our people and to grieve their passing and to be devastated when they're taken from us that people deserve to be missed and mourned and we deserve to be missed and mourned. We deserve to be raged, you know, like we deserve the rage in the streets over our lives being taken. Like that's, we deserve all of that. We are worthy of that anger and outrage and fear and sadness and devastation and recognize that you are part of a necessary and beautiful process and that the problem will come when we can't do that anymore. But also recognize that opening yourself up to that, once you do that and you say, okay, you know what? I'm going to have to sit and say that it will not kill me. Right. You also become open to joy in a way that you weren't before. I couldn't allow myself to live in black joy until I could sit in the devastation and the grief and the pain. And that's something that I think colonizers won't understand, right? They're constantly want black joy, right? They want our, they want our, and they can't even enjoy it fully because they aren't invested in it. They don't know what it's worth because they aren't even willing to feel the pain when we are stolen, right? When the moment I could do that, like I shed as many tears over watching black kids playing in the street and knowing that that's what I'm fighting for. That's the beauty that still exists. I can still, I can look at our continued existence like the miracle that it is, right? Like the beauty that it is, because I know without any reservation, what's been against us. I know the terror and the brutality that we've survived. And I'm not trying to romanticize perseverance. I'm trying to say that we value, we mourn because we value black life. And you can't open yourself up to that full value if you also can't open yourself up to the grief. So know that that's half the coin. Know that when you're feeling that, like I have to remind myself, I'm feeling this pain because I love black life. Right? It's not just the act of brutality, it's the life. And that life still exists, even if not with that person. And we are trying to protect that. And I think staying connected to all of that, finding space to collectively grieve, really honor that grief and honor the life 
that was taken is important. I think that a lot of times we are so busy thinking that the grief will kill us that we don't spend time to look at the life that was lived and to honor that and to recognize there's still beauty in that person, in that person's memory. Right. And we have to be able to do that collectively because we have to remember our humanity. And we have to remember that we're fighting for not just to avoid death, we are fighting for full life, for the right. beauty of our existence and our life. Um, and be open to that and reach out to people and know that some days you can't. Some days you just can't look at it. Some days you have to take a break. That's fine. Honor it, right? Don't do it when you can't. Right. But also know that you're stronger than that and know that you're feeling it because you are full of love. And I think we forget that. Thank you. My imparting question to you is, um, it's something I ask each and every one of my guests before we end the show. Um, thank you for that. Actually, I'm, I need a space, but I have to ask the question. And so it's a two-pronged question because I've always loved two-part questions. Um, one, is there anything that you were surprised I did not ask you? And two, who would you like to see on the show? Oh man, um, I mean, I think that in all honesty, we could probably talk forever. So I'm not surprised. I think that we're constrained by time and how, how wordy I am as a human. Um, so no, I'm not surprised. I think that, you know, we could have done this for three, four hours and you. would have talked about everything eventually, you know? Um, right. Oh my gosh, who would I like to see on the show? I mean, I just love to see black people talking. Um, I have, you know, I, I would say that there are people in, in spaces that I, I don't know, I would just love to see you talking with anyone, honestly. It's, I would love to actually hear from people I don't know and that I'm not aware of because mm -hmm. I think for me, like, encountering a new human that's, that I didn't know was in this space, I would love to see youth as well. Like, right. you know, I'd love to hear like how young people are getting through this time and seeing it right because it's such a um a totally different world so yeah i know i'd love to see you like, hear that zanetta a personal invitation from egioma herself okay a younger <laughs> person i would love to see you in conversation with a younger person okay and see how like they're looking at the world how they're looking at this quarantine how they're looking at race at their age you know yeah i would love to see that all right. Thank you so much for appearing on this episode, Thank episode you. number 20 of the full set. Thank I appreciate you. you. I love you. you so much. And I hope that you have a wonderful evening and enjoy uh, your next, you your too. next call. You too. All right. Peace y'all. Have a good night.